Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. Good to have the crowd that we have here today. So happy to see all of you. I think we've had a wonderful day of worship to God. Had a wonderful lesson by Mitch. I thought we had a good Bible class hour. Now we're going to open up our Bibles and study from Acts, the fifth chapter. Will you go in your Bible, please, to Acts, the fifth chapter, to where our scripture reading came from this morning? Here in Acts chapter 5, we find a very tragic story. We find a disturbing story, a sad story, a story that, as it was read for us this morning, hopefully it caused us to pause and ask the question of why? Why does God do this? Why does God kill these people? Why does God strike dead? Ananias and Sapphira, I believe that's a good question for us to think about this morning because while this is not the only time we find something like this going on in the Bible, it is rare. It is out of the ordinary. It is something that doesn't happen too often. I mean, think about it. David, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then also committed murder, but God didn't strike him dead. Cain murdered his brother Abel. God didn't strike him dead. Peter denied the Lord, not one time or two times, but three times, and God didn't strike him dead. In fact, in addition to denying the Lord, Peter in Galatians 2 also was involved in hypocrisy and causes some division in the church, and God didn't strike him dead there either. There are a lot of people in the Bible who do some awful and, and horrible and terrible things, and God doesn't kill them on the spot. And so, again, the question is, why these two? Why does God strike them? Why does God kill Ananias and Sapphira, especially when you consider how good things are going in the church at this time? I mean, I mean, I mean by this time, the church, the church, we can read about in Acts, the church in Jerusalem is thriving. It's growing. It's increasing. There are thousands and thousands of people responding to the gospel and becoming Christians, and they're spending time together. They're growing close to one another. They're building relationships both in the assembly and outside of the assembly. In fact, when needs pop up among them, they take care of those needs. They give, they share, they look out for each other as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, up to this point, the church is experiencing growth and love and peace and excitement. But then, boom, this right here seems to break that momentum. Two Christians and members of the Lord's church are struck dead by God. And again, the question is, why? Why does God do this? Why does Luke record this? What could we possibly learn from such a terrible and horrific scene in the Bible? Well, I want to suggest very quickly this morning that I think there are at least four lessons, three or four lessons that we learn about God from this very tragic story and the first lesson we learn is God sees everything. God sees everything. We learn that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, do we not? In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse number 3, in Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, the Hebrew writer says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What do we learn in those verses? Well, in all those 
In both of those verses, we learn the same thing about God. We learn the same thing about the eyes of God. We learn that when it comes to the eyes of God, God's eyes see everything. God's eyes see everything going on everywhere. They see everything we're doing in our lives. They see everything going on in the church. They see all the good and also all the bad. And I want to show you that from, Hebrew, uh, from Acts, I'm sorry, we were just in Hebrews. But look at Acts, the fourth chapter. I want to show you something in Acts chapter 4. I think we have an unfortunate chapter break in Acts chapter 4 in verse 37. I think there's an unfortunate chapter break there. And so let's try to read the whole context here and see if we can see what's going on in the context. When describing the church in Jerusalem, a church that by this time is full of a lot of people. There are thousands and thousands of people in this church. Acts 4 and verse 4 says that there are about 5,000 males in this church. That's adult males. That's not counting the women and the children. There could have been up to 15 and 20,000 or 20,000 people in the church. And yet the Bible says in verse 32, in the congregation or the assembly of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, for all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them. They bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it. He laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So there's a lot we could say about those verses this morning, but due to time, I just want to make a couple of quick observations. First, I want you to notice what chapter 4, beginning with verse 36, tells us about Barnabas. I want you to notice how the Bible describes Barnabas. Notice how Barnabas is described as a wealthy disciple who's also very generous. He's wealthy and he's extremely generous. He actually sold some of his property and he gave all of the proceeds from that sale into the church treasury so it could be distributed to the needy saints. His actions are actually a stark contrast to what is being described for us in the first few verses of chapter 5. I want you to notice how while Barnabas was a very sincere, genuine, and authentic disciple, Ananias and Sapphira, this Christian couple, they are not. They're not sincere. They're not genuine. They're not really on board with the standard of New Testament Christianity. You see, like Barnabas, they're also wealthy. They got money and they got property. In fact, they sell some of their property, but they're not honest about what they do with all the proceeds. You see, while they do give a portion of the proceeds to help needy brethren, they actually lie and act as though they gave all of it. They pretend as though they gave all the money to help the needy saints and their actions are especially puzzling because God never told them they had to do that. 
God never told them they had to sell their property. God never told them that they had to give all of the proceeds to help needy brethren. As Peter clearly says in the text, the property they sold belonged to them and they could have done whatever they wanted with the money. It was their property. It was their money. They could have given all of it to the needy saints. They could have given 50 percent, 25 percent, 10 percent. That was up to them. It was their property and it was their money. And so the question is, why did they lie? Why did they lie about what they gave? Well, the reason why they lied was because they wanted praise. They wanted praise from men. They wanted acclaim and adoration. They wanted others to esteem them in the same way that they were esteeming Barnabas in the previous chapter. They wanted brethren to believe that they were being just as generous as Barnabas was. And they almost got away with that. Only God knew about what they were doing and he exposed them. He exposed their lies. He exposed their deceit. He exposed them to the apostle Peter and the apostle Peter rebuked them individually before they were struck down dead. From this text, we clearly see that when it comes to God and the eyes of God, God sees everything. He sees everything. He sees every step we take. He sees every action we make. He hears every word that we speak. He knows who the real, genuine and authentic disciples are and who the hypocrites are. God knows who the hypocrites are. God knows who the fakes and the phonies are. God knows who are those who are truly giving their all and those who are just merely pretending to in front of other people. He knows if we come here to this place and we give our all in worship, we give our all in the singing, we give our all when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper and listening to preaching, but then we go home or we go to work or we go to school and we don't give him our all there. We don't give him our all when it comes to how we treat our spouse behind closed doors. We don't give him our all when it comes to what we're watching on Netflix or, or, or HBO Max or when we're browsing the Internet on our computer. We don't give him our all when it comes to what we choose to wear and what we allow to come out of our mouths. And when we drink and, and laugh at dirty jokes and bully and mock and, and make fun of other people. So often we fail to understand. The very same lesson that Ananias and Sapphira had to learn the hard way, and that is we may be able to fool a lot of people. We may be able to fool the brethren. We may be able to fool the church. We may be able to fool the shepherds or the preacher. But one person we can't fool is we can't fool God. You can't fool God. God sees everything. He saw what Ananias and Sapphira were doing, and he exposed it. But not only do we learn here that God sees everything, a second lesson I think we need to appreciate is how God takes sin seriously. God takes sin very seriously, and that's something we need to emphasize, especially in the kind of culture we're living in today. I think we need to spend some time talking about this point because it might be easy for us to look at what Ananias and Sapphira do on this occasion and say to ourselves, well, is that really, is that really a big deal? I mean, they told a lie, right? They 
they were dishonest. They deceived people into believing that they were more generous than they really were. I mean, is that really that big of a deal? Is it really that serious? Well, to God, it, it was. To God, their sin was a big deal, no matter how we might think about it. We might look at this and go, well, you know what? It's not like they murdered somebody. It's not like they were practicing abortion or homosexuality. It's not like they were involved in drunkenness or stealing somebody's property. I mean, they lied. Is it really that big of a deal? Again, to God, it was. It was a very big deal. In fact, it was such a big deal that got them both killed by God. So go back to the text again. Look at chapter 5. We go back to verse 3. In verse 3, Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, it did not remain your own. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You not lie to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, and here's some of the most frightening words in all the New Testament, Ananias fell down, and he breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She doesn't know her husband's been struck down dead. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Notice how she continues to lie. She's clearly in on this. She doesn't repent. She doesn't tell the truth. She continues to lie. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door. Can you imagine how frightened she was when she heard an apostle say that? They're at the door. And they're going to carry you out of here as well. And immediately she fell his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice how the reason why this sin and really all sin is such a big deal to God is because of who it is against. We need to think about who sin is ultimately against. Notice how, according to Peter, this lie told by Ananias and Sapphira wasn't first and foremost against him. It wasn't first and foremost against a man or a woman or an apostle or against even all the brothers and the sisters in the church. No, Peter says they had lied to God. They had lied to the spirit of God. They had lied to the Holy Spirit who at this time had been working and bringing about so much excitement and, and unity in the church above anything else. This sin was against God and we'll be wise to always remember that. Whenever we're tempted to sin. Whenever we're tempted to do something out of bounds, out of step with the will of God, whenever we actually do sin, we'll be wise to always remember that our sins don't just impact us and they don't just impact other people. But most importantly, they impact God. They hurt God. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They offend and insult God. They invite into our lives the wrath of God. You know, what we see here in this text, my dear friends. We see that contrary to what a lot of people believe today,
the God that we read about in the Old Testament, he's the same God we read about in the New Testament. That's not two different gods you read about in the Bible. It's the same God. It's the same Lord. Just like God hated sin in the Old Testament, guess what? He hates sin in the New Testament. Just like he punished sin in the Old Testament, guess what? He punishes sin in the New Testament. Just like he struck down Uzzah for touching the ark, and he wasn't supposed to do that in 2 Samuel 6. And just like he consumed Nadab and Abihu for offering up unauthorized worship to him in Leviticus chapter 10. And just like he demanded that Achan be killed because he kept and stole some of the spoils of war from Jericho and Joshua 7. Here in Acts chapter 5, God kills Ananias and Sapphira because of sin. Because they lied. Because they were involved in evil and wicked behavior. This incident shows us that to God, sin is serious. All sin is serious. There's no such thing as a little sin in the eyes of God. We see here that God takes sin very seriously, but not only do we learn about how God feels about sin here, we also learn some things about God's enemy. God's enemy, who is the devil. What do we see here? Well, we see that when it comes to God's enemy, who is the devil, the devil attacks God's people in many different ways. Sometimes the devil attacks God's people externally, right? Sometimes he attacks God's people from without, from the outside, through persecution, from wicked and corrupt people who oppose the gospel. Isn't that something we read about throughout the book of Acts? I mean, we read about it in Acts chapter, chapter 4 and in the latter part of chapter 5 when the apostles are arrested and beaten and threatened by the Sanhedrin council. We, we also read about it in Acts chapter 7, don't we? When Stephen is stoned to death by the council for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And then what about the ministry of the apostle Paul? Do not, we read about Paul being persecuted all throughout the book of Acts. Sometimes the devil attacks God's people from the outside, from opposing forces, from persecution and hatred from the world, but not only does he attack the church from without, sometimes the devil also attacks the church from within. Sometimes he attacks the church internally. And I think Peter's making that point very clear in chapter five and verse three, when he says to Ananias, why has Satan Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land. Notice how when rebuking Ananias, Peter mentions the devil. Do you see that? He doesn't tell Ananias the devil's not real. He's a figment of our imagination. He's some made up person by preachers to scare people. No, Peter says Satan's real. In fact, not only is Satan real, but he wanted Ananias to understand that he was ultimately behind what was going on there. He was at work there. He was tempting them to commit this great evil, and he was going to try to use this to hinder God's work. Someone says, how was the devil going to use this to hinder the work of God? Well, think about it. Think about the church here. Think about how many people would have been discouraged and disappointed when they heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and what they were up to. 
You think Ananias and Sapphira had some friends in this church? Do you have friends in this church? They probably had some friends. And can you imagine how disappointed their friends were when they found out about what they were doing? Can you imagine how disappointed the apostles were? Or the senior saints were? Or the young Christians, the young people in the church were when they heard about this? In fact, it is interesting to notice when the devil is striking the people of God at this time. Notice how the devil isn't striking the people of God during a time when things are going well. He's not striking them during a time when the church is, 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 is really struggling and going through things. No, he's, he's striking the church when things are going very, very well, not when things are not going well. Things are going well. The church is growing. Church is thriving. Gospel is going out. People are believing the gospel. They're repenting. They're being baptized. They're being converted. There's great unity and peace in the church. They are of one heart and one soul. That's what's going on here. And the devil strikes the church then. That's how he works. That's how he often strikes the people of God. Brother Mitch made a great point this morning, and I appreciate it. We're blessed as a congregation. Would you agree with that? We're blessed. And 2023 has been a good year for us so far, to the glory of God. We've been blessed here at Monta Vista. We've had several baptisms. We got all kinds of studies going on right now. We got young couples in this church who are having babies. People are placing membership, good attendance to worship, to the worship assemblies on Sundays. The numbers are always going up. We have lots of visitors all the time, people being restored, they're repenting. So many good things going on at God's congregation in this place. And let me ask you something. Do you think the devil is going to sit back and do nothing about that? You think the devil is going to ignore us and, and pretend as though we're really not a threat to his work? You think the devil is going to avoid trying to bring some problems and trials our way? Of course not. Of course not. You see, like with our brethren so long ago, we need to also expect the devil to strike us when things are going well. We need to also expect problems from without and from within. We need to also expect some people, even of our, um, among our own number right now, who are going to disappoint us and let us down. In fact, there are two verses here in Acts chapter 5 that I think we need to be mindful of, not if this is going to happen, but rather when this is going to happen. And so look at Acts chapter 5 and verse 14, please. Look at verse number 14. After God brought judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, in verse number 14, the scripture says this, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Drop down now, please, to the last verse of the chapter. Look at verse number 42. Here, this is after the apostles are arrested by the council. They're beaten, they're thrown in jail, and they're, and they're threatened. They're told, don't you preach anymore about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says in verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You see the point? Do you, do you see how no matter what problems came their way, no matter if they faced external, an external threat or an internal threat, the early brethren, the first century saints, they kept on doing God's work. They didn't quit. 
They didn't stop working. They didn't stop preaching and teaching and advancing the message of Jesus. No, no matter what came their way, they stayed focused on the mission. And that's how we got to be here at Monte Vista. No matter what our culture does, no matter what the government does, no matter what problems we have from within this family, and we're going to have problems, we got to always stay focused. Got to stay focused on Jesus. Got to stay focused on the gospel. Got to stay focused on unity and teaching the word and giving God the glory. That's what they did. That's what we got to do. The church didn't let this setback with Ananias and Sapphira stop them from continuing on and fighting against the devil. In fact, that brings us to a last question I think we need to ask this morning, and that's this question. What was the main message? What was the main message that God was trying to send the church by striking dead Ananias and Sapphira? Well, can I submit this to you this morning? Can I submit that the main message God was sending his people through this act of judgment was this right here. He demands integrity and holiness from his people. He demands integrity and holiness from his people. And you know why I put that on the slide? Because of Acts chapter 5. Look at verse number 5, please. And then we'll drop down, look at verse 11. In verse number 5, the scripture says this. As he heard these words, as Ananias heard these words from Peter, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came over all who heard of it. That wouldn't just be the church, but that's also people in the community. They're going to hear about this. But drop down to verse 11. Verse 11 says, after Sapphira was struck down dead, great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Notice how after God takes this severe action against Ananias and Sapphira, people become afraid. The church becomes afraid. Christians become afraid. Why do Christians become afraid? Well, they become afraid because they've never seen anything like this before. They've never seen God respond in this way before. They've never seen God respond to hypocrisy in this way before. You know, you know, so often we hear people say, well, I don't want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Not here. Not here. Not anymore. You know what God did with the hypocrites in the church? He killed them. He struck them dead. If there were any other hypocrites prior to this, after this, they straightened up. Oh, they straightened up. They repented. They started fearing the Lord. They stopped playing games with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Ananias and Sapphira had been involved in public deception, and God dealt with them in a public way. He sent a strong message about the high expectations he has for his people while the world lies. While the world is dishonest and gets involved in immorality and drunkenness and gossip and backbiting and hatred and all kinds of other ungodly things, God demands his people to be different. God demands his people to be honest and holy and pure and kind and full of integrity. 
The church was terrified when they saw God respond to sin in this way. And we need to be just as terrified today. We need to be just as terrified about sinning today. Whenever we're tempted to sin and do anything outside of God's will, we need to remember that while God may not strike us dead, he still sees what we're doing. He's still watching us. He's observing us. And he will still deal with us in his time and in his way and in his powerful judgment. And so while this story is disturbing and even terrifying, I want to suggest that it's in the Bible for a reason. It's been preserved for a reason. It's here to urge us as God's people today to be afraid of sinning against God and to repent and beg for his forgiveness if we're currently harboring sin in our lives. In fact, maybe that's something you need to do this morning. Maybe this morning you realize, you look at your own life and you realize, man, I'm living a double life. I'm living like Ananias and Sapphira. I'm putting on a front. I'm pretending to be an authentic disciple, but God knows I'm really not that. I need to repent. And I need to beg God to forgive me. That's your need. We'll pray with you and pray for you this morning if your heart's not right with God, as the song says. But if you're here and you've never even responded to the gospel, you can do that as well. If you're willing to believe in the Lord Jesus and repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of your sins, the Lord will wash away your sins by the blood of Jesus and he will bring you into his family. And you can start walking with him in your life right now. If that's your need this morning, come to the front. Let's stand.